Jesus, we have sung as our kids have led us in singing and praising that you are, in fact, our king. And yet we confess that sometimes we are not quite sure what that means. We know how to celebrate great feats of competition like basketball championships and the masters. But we confess that you are the kind of king that puzzles us a little bit. And so we ask that you would free us to see you well, that you would help us to see who you are and to respond to who you are in our lives and in others. Make us free to see you and hear you and make us free to obey you as you call us to join you in things that we wouldn't do otherwise. We ask this in your name. Amen. Usually I read the scriptures before we, uh, before we engage with the sermon, but tonight I'm not going to do that. My friend uh, Harper Fritch is over here. He's going to help me preach a sermon tonight. So would you all give a hand to Harper? Stand right in front of that chair right there. So Harper is going to read out of Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. And he's going to go through verse 40. So hear the word of the Lord for us on this Palm Sunday. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his, he- of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Stop. Okay. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear what he said? You didn't act too excited. It is that time of year. You're off to celebrate with family and friends, but while you look forward to it, the traveling is about ready to kill you. You've packed everything. You've done the head count. It's time to go, so you set off. You're there in Jericho, and you're traveling to Jerusalem, and from traveling to Jericho to Jerusalem involves this long, hard climb. I've got a picture for you. Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level, while Jerusalem, which is about 15 or 16 miles away, just just a little bit longer than the half marathon you have been training for, is nearly 3,000 feet above sea level. Now, in this scene, thousands of people are making a journey. They're headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, a Jewish holiday in which they remember that early on in their history, God had saved them from the evil that was Egypt. Now today, you and your people are suffering again. This time it's not Egypt, but it's Rome. And no, it's no doubt that you have mixed emotions as you're trying to remember a story of hope, but, you've all, but you've also, you're also a person that hasn't felt freedom in a long time. It doesn't take you but a few minutes to see the irony in your journey. The hike becomes symbolic of your whole life. It is a hard walk. It's a difficult climb. It's a Lenten road. It is a road of lament. 
Uh, how have you, have you ever thought life sure didn't turn out how I expected? I never thought I'd ever be here. I, maybe you thought, I, I thought I would have achieved more by now. Or I never would have thought that marriage would have gone south. Maybe you thought, I never thought she'd do that to me. Or I never expected that I'd be carrying this burden. Well, this journey, welcome to what it means to be human. Because like the journey towards Jerusalem, life can be a hard, long road. In life, you face all kinds of difficulties. You face heartache and pain, loss, burdens, anxiety. There's political concerns, disappointment, job loss, wayward children, unforgettable memories, memories you just can't get rid of. Being on the receiving end of painful words. Welcome to what it means to be human. Welcome to the journey. Welcome to Lent. Now here you are, you're navigating rocks. This is all in the text that Harper read. You're navigating rocks. Your feet are blistered. Your toenails are falling off while the children in the group are screaming. When are we going to get there? But finally, finally you reach the top and there it's the Mount of Olives. And on this particular day, when you turn the corner, all of the sudden it's, it's there. It's like a surprise, a little surprise of hope that springs up inside you. There it is. It's in the sight of the vegetation and the trees and the olives grow, uh, the olive groves. There are things that are growing. There is evidence of new life. And for the first time ever in a long time, you see the first real vegetation at the first glorious site of Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem is this special place that you've been waiting for. It's a place of meaning. It's a place of value. It's God's city. They say that God lives there. And this, this desperate expectation springs up inside you. And you get to say, maybe, maybe God will meet me here. Palm Sunday is that Sunday that reminds us that that something new is on the horizon of our lives. So as Harper reads, can you hear it? As you arrive, you can see that the party has already started. There is this sense of excitement. You can smell the food. You can hear the music. You find yourself in one of those moments when you just know that something amazing is going to happen. There is singing and dancing. You can hear it. It's out there ahead of you. But then somebody runs up to you, grabs you by the shoulders, thrusts a drink into your hand and says, welcome. And you realize that coming to this place to celebrate the great stories of the past means that the dreams that you've had about the future, the dreams that you've had of freedom or of hope, it just might be a possibility. Go ahead, Harper. Go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that has no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why you are untying that colt, just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, it was there. They were untying it. The owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? The disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. Stop. Thank you, Harper. Can you feel it? Do you know what's happening here? Not only are you bursting with excitement, 
But it dawns on you that that which was declared a long time ago, that there was a promised Messiah, a Savior who would rescue the people from their brokenness. Well, wouldn't you know it? He just might be standing there right in front of you. You always, you always knew that there was something special about that dude, but now he's blowing your mind for a long time. You, you, you realize it for a long time. He's been talking about the incoming kingdom of God, but now you realize that it just might be happening. And the symbolism again is not lost on you. An entry of triumph riding into town, the crowd celebrating. You've heard this story before. Because when you were a little Jewish kid, your parents made you memorize a poem that came out of one of the ancient readings from the prophet Zechariah. And, and it would have gone like this. Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming. A good king who makes things right. A humble king who is riding on a donkey. Now, now you're getting to watch something that, that your grandfather's grandfather has been waiting to happen. I remember how I felt when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series in 2016. I mean, the Cubs hadn't won the World Series in 108 years. We were disappointed so many times. 1945, 1969, 1984, 1989, 1998, and 2003. This is a picture that I posted after they won the World Series. I'm the one on that end. On April the 7th of 2017, I called my grandpa on his birthday and I said to him, Gramps, I got good news for you. Happy birthday. The Chicago Cubs are World Series champions. And he began to cry. (laughs) And he said, can you believe it? Can you believe it? You are now watching something happen that your grandfather's grandfather has been waiting for. God's, God's sovereign and saving presence is being revealed in a new way. And it, it at last is going to come true. Those scriptures that you learned, the poems that you memorized and were told to you when you were young are now being fulfilled. Keep reading, Harper. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Stop. You should be able to feel it. This is the climax. Your friends who've been gathering around you, those that have been following with, following Jesus with you from the start, well, they start throwing their coats on the back of a colt, and then you see the crowds start to throw their garments on the ground, just as your forefathers did for Jehu, who was anointed king, and you can read about your old story in 1 Kings chapter 9. And then you realize it. I mean, it's happening in front of you. You realize that you don't spread cokes on the ground, especially in the dusty, stony Middle East for a friend or even a respected elder of your family. You do it for royalty. 
And you watch in amazement as this takes place. And you recognize that those who are in front of you and those who are behind you, those who are lining the streets, they start to fill the air with choruses. And even though Rome is represented by a massive police force that day, the people go on and they sing anyway. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And there you are. You're starting to get swept up into the emotion of the whole thing. I mean, who wouldn't? We get swept up into spiritual experiences all the time, chanting and singing and following the crowd. The first time I was invited to Norman to go watch a football game, I was both stunned and caught off guard. And I felt a tingle that went through my spine when I heard for the first time, it's football time in Oklahoma. It was a spiritual experience. Now, while you are screaming, here you are jumping in excitement, you're getting pumped up, you don't, you miss out on something. You don't, you don't realize that actually that there's something that is eerily familiar about this whole event. The fact of the matter is you've been part of celebrations like this before. And you've forgotten that messiahs actually come and go. Messiahs are actually all too common. There have been lots of them. There's a, messiahs are a dime, a dime a dozen. There are sports messiahs. For nearly a decade, ESPN's favorite topic was Tim Tebow. And Tebow, if you remember, was seen as God's anointed. One poll shows that because of his faith, the majority of Americans thought that God was on Tim Tebow's side, which was the reason why the Denver Broncos would have these miraculous fourth quarter wins, no matter what Sherry Gately says. These, <laughs> these were the jerseys that were even purchased and worn by Denver Bronco fans. Sports messiahs. We also have political messiahs. Everyone knows that in the political arena, all parties attempt to hold up some sort of messianic figure who will come and create change, will provide reform, they'll come and establish opportunities for wealth building, along with a good education and health care, and the, they promise to create a pretty, they pretty much promise to create a longer, fuller, happier, more vibrant life. And every one of them says that God is on their side. Every slogan is some sort of eschatological divine promise, like change you can believe in, or heal, inspire, revive, or are you better off than you were four years ago? And my favorite, Bartlett for America. What about advertising messiahs? I mean, I, th I think the only thing that politicians don't promise is better sex, because they'll leave, they'll leave that up to the messianic products that promise, promise to save us every day. From toothpaste to vehicles and detergent and faster internet connections that will save us from our bad lives and give us opportunity for free love with no strings attached, which of course will save us from these horrible lives we live in. You and I have fallen victim to, these, to the energy and these sorts of celebrations. These sorts of celebrations of these messiahs we see can catch us off guard and convince us that this is what messiahs do. They align themselves with our expectations and they promise to meet our desires. Now, the donkey that Harper read about should be your clue. This ain't just another messianic rally. And this thing isn't going to go how you think it's going to go. Tell us how it goes, Harper. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, 
rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Stop. You know, when a Messiah doesn't do what we think he's going to do, when a Messiah doesn't act like we think he should act, when the Messiah doesn't meet our every desire, we got a word for a guy like that. It's failure. Jesus is a failure. He rides into town on the back of a donkey, a sign that presupposes an already achieved victory. It's like he rides into town, like he's already won the whole thing, but then in the end, he ends up getting himself killed. One person said Jesus was crucified, not because he was the king that everyone wanted, the king that everybody expected, or the king that everyone thought they deserved. They wanted a king who could take charge, and the perception was that the only way to take charge was through power and politics. And this, this should be the event when he grabs hold of the authority that was his. But instead you watch and your stomach drops. He's a joke. An unemployed, unarmed man with no army becomes Pilate's punchline. A loser on the back of an ass. No wonder the Pharisees scoff. And in the middle of the excitement and the fanfare that's going around, all, all this is starting to go south. Because what you see is if you put up this savior next to Rome's representative, whose name is Pilate, the one who is full of brute power and enters in to keep the peace, what we call Pax Romana, peace that comes through victory, he comes in during the Passover as well. And when you compare the two, there's absolutely no comparison. Pilate travels in with troops and flags and weapons, all the signs of the empire, and it's all very impressive. And he rides in on a magnificent horse in case the flags and the weapons and the troops aren't sufficiently, they're not a sufficiently intimidating display of power anyway. So you gotta ask yourself, who represents the savior of the world better? Jesus or Pilate? And to make matters worse, I mean, this thing is breaking bad. To make matters worse, later this week, you watch this, this powerful governor of Judea, whose name is Pilate, stare at the bedraggled, whipped, tortured Jesus and ask him, are you the king of the Jews? In this text that Harper's reading for us today, I think the real savior is revealed. His name is Pilate. And after all, he's the picture of success. He's the one who will listen to the crowds when they say they want someone dead. He's the people's Messiah. He's the dude that will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to keep the peace. He's the one who puts the stop to this rebellion, rebellious Messiah. He's the one who's there to keep the peace. And Jesus is failure. And you wonder, you start to wonder when it went wrong. Well, in 2016... Uh, prior to his presidential election, Mitt Romney critiqued uh, Donald Trump. And after the critique, Donald Trump said, Mitt is a failed candidate. He failed. He failed horribly. Trump then followed it up by saying he choked. He chickened out. Now, sometimes our president does say things that reveal the truth in all of us. Because the fact of the matter is we don't like losers. We bet on winners. Winners take us somewhere. We don't want to associate, we want to associate with winners, not losers. In Russ, we trust. 
make America great again. Coke is it. We want to be winners. We want a Messiah that ushers in peace to our lives, that relieves our burdens, establishes victory for us, and makes our lives easier. Pax Romana. Now the Pharisees here, Harper just read, revealed the same truth. We don't like Messiahs who fail, so shut up. Harper, keep reading. Jesus replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Stop. The word of God for the people of God. And we all say, you can sit down if you want, Harper. So all through Luke, Jesus is misunderstood. It's a confusing setting. He battles the religious leaders. The disciples fight and they completely muck up everything he wants to do. He nearly gets killed by the people of his own town. But it's interesting that while Jesus is misunderstood, Jesus is actually very clear. We just couldn't hear him. Because he said, I don't come to bring peace through victory, uh, Pax Romana. He says, I came not to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword, Pax Christi. He works for peace and it comes through justice. In other words, he's saying, I've come to mix it up. I've come to change things around, to shake the very nature of creation and disturb the very essence of everything and to set things right. I didn't come to bring peace, he says in Luke 15. I came to bring a sword. What does that mean? Well, well all I know is this, that this week our church board, along with the leadership of the, 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 along with the board of the Christ Experience, was hosted at a conversations workshop that was led by our own Lauren and Leah Palmer. This is the front of their website. Now, one of the things that we did together is we discussed issues of race and reconciliation and what it means to hear one another and to realize that some of us are afforded privileges that others have not been afforded. And as we talked together and as we met together, all of a sudden we could feel the transcendent presence of something or someone. And it was like our hearts were being pierced. Our thoughts and our ideas and our perspectives were being carved into pieces by the hand of the Almighty. And it wasn't easy. There were tears and there were confessions, questions, struggle, and even anxiety. But it was like, by the grace of Jesus, he took the scalpel and did surgery on our hearts so that peace could descend on us and make its way into our lives and our relationships and even our city. This week, I talked to a woman on the phone, a neighbor of Mike and Beth, Becky LaPrairie, whose house burned down this week. This is the picture on Facebook. Engulfed, everything ruined. When I talked to her, her soul was slain. And as she told me about the fire, she said, I'm so grateful for what you're willing to do, for giving me a call. And I'm so grateful for neighbors like Mike and Becky Peace strangely rested on her in the embodied presence of good and useful neighbors. For the last number of months, we've been trying to help. This is, might be surprising to you, but for the last number of months here at our church, we've been trying to help a woman get out of an abusive relationship. And it has been going on, that has been going on for almost three decades. And, and this is the surprising part. So, you know, our church has actually helped a woman get a divorce. We paid for that out of our freedom fund that you give to. 
I've never been a part of a church that helps somebody get a divorce before. It's been fabulous. And when she finally drove away from her husband, he didn't even act like he cared. So she came to the church and she was shaking and crying and she sat in my office and she was cut to the core, so hurt and yet at the same time so free. She cried and she said, after all these years, he doesn't care. And in the same breath, she said, I'm so thankful that I'm free. And I thought to myself, I think claiming the freedom that is offered to you by Jesus just might be one of the hardest things in the world. And she did it. Harper's last line said, creation will cry out. And while people don't get it, creation seems to get it. Jesus replies by by saying this, if I shut them up, the rocks will cry out. In other words, all creation needs a change. And if you don't jump on board, the whole cosmos will go on and sing about my arrival and my mission, about my work. Have you ever thought, life sure didn't turn out like I thought it, like I'd expected. I never thought I'd, I never thought I'd be here. And Jesus didn't intend for you to be there either. So his entrance into the city of God is a triumph. And I want you to hear these words. He is taking over. And his purpose is to shake up the powers that be and to renew the very essence of creation, including our own lives. Did you notice that Harper didn't read anything about palm branches? They're never mentioned in this gospel. Palm branches are mentioned in other gospels, but nobody in this gospel is waving anything. Oh, I guess we could call this cloak Sunday because they talk about coats and cloaks instead of palm Sunday because there aren't any palm Sunday in Luke. But you know what is in Luke? Passion Sunday. And it is with passion that Jesus went to the cross. Passion for you. Passion for me. And we don't like messiahs who fail because it forces us to actually recognize the failure in our own lives and in ourselves. Some have failed raising children. Some have failed in their marriages. Some have failed in their jobs. Some have failed with friendships. Some have been branded failure. You are a failure. Some just can't get it together in any area of their lives. To some, he looks like a failure. But I'll have you know, creation gets it. And the cosmos understands it differently. And there are some here at the 8th Street Church who also understand it. We don't, we don't need a Messiah that can't keep his or her or its promises. We need a Messiah that purposely walks and sacrifice towards a cross and declares this, that the Son of Man will be handed over, tried, crucified, he will suffer and die, but in three days you just wait because he will rise again. You need to know that Jesus did not fail in his mission. He saves our lives, not by making promises or holding rallies or placing us on the winning team, not by dynamic speeches. He, he saves our lives by giving his away. And he does so with intention and purpose. And the reason he does this is because he knew, he knew and he knows and he always will know that we are absolute failures in our own right and in saving ourselves. By coming on the back of a donkey... 
Jesus reveals his true identity. And the whole scene that Harper read for you says, I am the Messiah and I will save, but it won't be like you expect. It's this weird paradox that you see in Zechariah 9.9. Your king is coming to you, humble and unlike Pilate. The gospel of Luke has these crowds that hail him. They call him teacher and it foretells the destruction of the city and Jesus weeps over it. As he weeps for us, he identifies with us in our failure. And you noticed also in the reading that Harper did that there is no, really, there's, there's no words, not a lot of words by Jesus in the middle of the celebration. Not tons of speeches, no promises. There's only one thing. Jesus' intention to give his life away through death on a cross. This is Palm Sunday. It's also called Passion Sunday. And Passion Sunday is the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week. It's the week where we acknowledge together that Jesus moved towards a cross. It's a week where we remember that on the cross, he bled and he suffered and died. And during Passion Week, he met with his disciples. He took off his clothes. He wrapped a towel around himself and he wiped their feet. He washed their feet. And then he moved into a garden praying for the will of God. He was given a guilty sentence when he was innocent. He heard the chants of the people that shouted on one day, Messiah, come save us. It turned then into crucify him. He was whipped, flogged, beaten, stripped, mocked, betrayed, tortured, and he gave up his life in order that he might conquer death. He was no failure in this. This kind of work on our half and for us demands a response. And the response is that we can trust him. Complete surrender and complete submission to this Messiah, we can put our full trust in him. And as he gives his life for us, we have the opportunity to give our lives fully over to him. On this Passion Sunday, we've heard the cheers. We've shouted the hosannas. We've seen the children. And we've recognized the true nature of this Messiah's identity. He is the one who has come to save us and promise us, promises to do so if we walk in his way. He's the one who embraces our desert. He has the power to forgive our sins. And he has the ability to raise us to new life. So as he has given his life fully to us, I think the appropriate response would be for us to give our lives wholly and surrendered to him. That is one of the things that we do when we come to this table. I want to make sure that you know uh, that you're clear with what we do here. When we come to the Lord's table, we're actually surrendering our lives to him. We don't come as a symbol and we don't come because it's nice. We don't come because it's some sort of statement. We come surrendered. And every time we see the cross, the one that is standing above this table, we're invited to participate in the way of Jesus and we're invited to put our trust in God, the one who is capable to turn our lives around. Each week we're invited to this table of our Lord and we are reminded, we're reminded that we are invited to trust here. And the bread and the wine is a constant reminder of something tangible. It is a new reality. It is our hope. It is a new story and a bold statement. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. 
The act of Jesus on the cross was an act of generosity and sacrifice. And on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, there in Passion Week, at dinner he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup of wine and he held it up and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that I'm doing something new and it comes in my sacrifice, in my blood, which is poured out for you. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. This is an open table, which means that anybody who is open to the transforming work of Christ in your life is welcome to this table. If you long to surrender to the one who has surrendered to the cross, you are welcome to this table. Everyone who is open to believe in this good work and wants to receive the grace that comes from God in Christ is welcome. Here it is where we live in attention, that we follow the one who has been the victim of this world, and yet at the very same time, he says to his friends, do not worry, my friends, for I have overcome it. We want no barriers, so I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. I invite you, if you want to come, to exit the left side of your row. Come down one of our aisles. Come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it because it is a gift. So allow one of these to serve you and, and then, uh, and, and, and allow these, one of these to serve you and listen to what they have to say. And then when you've heard what they say, dip the bread into the cup and then eat it. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, just wave at Justin. He would love to come and bring the elements to you. Friends, this is an act of sacrifice on our behalf and for our behalf. It is an opportunity to you, for you to receive the good grace of God. So I invite you to come when you're ready.